Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and be seated. We're um, really glad to be back embodied together as Jesus' church, to be in this space, in this place at this time. And, and like as even we were apart for just a week, just like built this anticipation and excitement in my own heart to be back with all of you on Sunday. As individuals, as we live scattered throughout the city, serving Jesus in our jobs and in our homes and in a variety of ways, that is like holy and special and unique, but there's also something holy and special and unique about the church, like gathered together in a physical space. And as we recognize like throughout our week that Jesus is the king of our lives individually, but then we come together and recognize that like Jesus is the king, he's the head of this community, this new little Jesus community centered around Christ and his teachings. For those of you that don't know, like we're like eight months old, nine months old, this like brand new thing that Jesus is doing in the heart of downtown, in the, like manifesting his kingdom more in the city. And as we recognize, as we regather, like Jesus Christ is the head of his church. And while some of us are tasked with leading the life of the church, our deepest desire, our deepest desire is to let King Jesus have his way in us. To let this church be a like Jesus-centered church. As cheesy as it is, our hope of real, like, reality would be that like Jesus really is like the senior pastor of River and Way. He would be the one calling the shots. When Jackie and I used to live in Bend, Oregon, there was a local coffee shop named Thump, and the guy who owned it was a physicist. He's like way smarter than I could ever be. But I remember having a, a long, full conversation about the process of making coffee with him. And he would say, in most simplest terms, he would say the key to a good cup of coffee is messing up the process the least. And while, like, that's a gross and oversimplified version of church leadership, our hope and our deepest desire is to, like, mess up the process of Jesus leading his church the least we can. That Jesus really would have his way in this community at, like, every fiber of its being. And we would allow, because sometimes our pace even moves beyond like what the Spirit's pace is, but we would allow the like slow and the deep roots to take place to form this community more like a tree in the forest and less like something that gets put up in a day's time. 
And with that sort of lens, this long focus toward discipleship or apprenticeship, learning the way and mimicking the life of the person of Jesus, we launched into in the very beginning the Sermon on the Mount, kind of Jesus' highest teaching. And we spent our year focusing on the words and the person of Jesus and the types of lives that Jesus was inviting people to like build, actively and intentionally build on the foundation of his word. And we talked about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that like this building in itself was built six inches at a time. Like layer upon layer upon layer, the slow, long process of building something beautiful. And in that same sort of way, formation or maybe reformation of both unlearning and relearning how to live a life centered around Jesus and his teachings takes a long and intentional time. And so as we left the Sermon on the Mountain, considered what was next, it really felt like stepping into some of the ancient spiritual practices that we as Protestants, even though we are like no longer protesting anything, we still call ourselves Protestants, but that's okay. But as followers of Jesus in the West, we have by and large lost these like deeply formative practices of the life of the church over time. And while after Songs and Stories next week, we're going to look more into the way Sabbath specifically forms our lives, we really wanted to slow down and take a couple of months to like teach Sabbath and to like breathe Sabbath into our lives and to practice Sabbath and like fail at it miserably because that's how you really learn how to practice things. Like have a faith that actually has an outworking into the fabric of our lives, a faith that's transformative. So we're taking the first couple of months of 2022 not to lean into it. This is like, this is not a new resolution. That's not at all what this is. This is like a brick in the building of our lives around the person of Jesus. Practicing the way of Christ, Sabbath, like something that was a regular practice for Jesus himself. Because at our root, we don't beliefs. And so we want to, with the Sermon on the Mount as our foundation and with Jesus' teachings and practices, we want to like put those hand in hand and like as a new community, build a different sort of life. And not oriented toward like becoming the best version of ourselves. Sabbath and the spiritual practices are not self-help. That's not what it is. This is about orienting ourselves to God. That's the heartbeat. That's the pulse of what the spiritual practices are. It's to like become something for the sake of God's glory, not just so we can just be the best version of ourselves. And so for the first week, we took a look at how we experience God in time, how the first thing the scriptures called holy is time, how Sabbath is a unique day in each and every week, like intentionally to experience God. And the second week, Jackie taught and we looked at how Sabbath is revealing, it reveals our false identities. When we slow down enough, and lead into God's heart that we're grace to be sufficient, not that like I've crossed things off the list is sufficient. That God's grace alone would be sufficient. And Sabbath gives us a day to be a human being again, rather than just always being a human doing. 
And the doing's important, but so is the being. And there is stuff to be done, and we'll get to that as we like wrap up the end of our teaching series. But first, we receive from God before we go out to do anything in the world. In the Genesis account, in the first chapter of Genesis, it always, always is evening and then morning. Like there's always rest and then you move out into the world to do what God has for you in that day. So there's always receiving and then doing, not doing and then receiving. And today we're going to look at the idea that God brings up in the fourth commandment, the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. The fourth commandment instructs us to keep the Sabbath holy. And we're going to look at that today. Let's pray before we continue on any further. Jesus, we ask that you would um, speak to our hearts. I can say lots of words, but God, you speak to hearts. What's beautiful about who you are is you know, like, you know the needs and the hurts and the pains and the desires of every person in this room right now. You know them and you see them, even if they won't be conscious about them themselves. You know them and you see them. And so, God, I ask that you would um, speak to them today. That you would meet your people in this place. And that you would have your way in us, King Jesus. We love you. Thank you for your love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So God, first to understand keeping the Sabbath holy, we first must understand that God himself is holy. But what on earth or in heaven does that even mean to be holy? Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. Talking about God. And God says, I live in a high and holy place but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God's name is holy and where he lives is holy, but he is not just there in that holy place. He is with the person whose heart is lowly in spirit for the purpose, not without purpose, but for the purpose of reviving them. Right off the bat today, I just want to say, like, if you're in a place where your heart or your spirit needs reviving, that's the place where God says he is. He is in the holy place, yes, but he's also in the place of the person whose heart needs reviving. So, like, trust that, read that, memorize that, and as your heart aches for revival, as our heart aches for revival in this city, may God's, like, spirit manifest to us individually and in this community. Because God lives in the place to revive people's hearts. And maybe that word revive for you is that like you would believe again. Maybe you're just having a hard time believing. Or maybe you've been hurt in a way that like some person who bared the name Christ harmed you and so you don't trust God anymore. But get off topic there really quickly. But what does holy mean? And what does it mean for God to be holy? What does it mean for Sabbath to be holy? 
When I say the word holy, what comes to mind for you? When I was growing up as a child, probably like you, we ate dinner on dinner plates. The same dinner plates each and every day, some worn more than others, some cracks, some have cracks or chips, some faded and they were no longer the color they originally were. Some plastic, but we weren't supposed to use those ones to heat up hot things because the res whatever. But those plates, they lived in a cupboard next to the sink down below so kids could help get them out and get them put away. Although, personally, I don't ever recalling putting plates away. I don't know. But these were like, these were ordinary plates. These were every day, Monday through Sunday sort of plates. Every meal kind of plates. Just like the socks on your feet or the slippers in your home, you use them every day in a thousand ordinary ways. But we also, in my home, had another sort of plate in the house. Unlike the plates stacked in the kitchen on top of one another, these plates were different and we did not use them every day. These plates were stacked in like foam folder type things and put away in a box and that box lived in a different cupboard in the house like a different cupboard in a different room in the house. Like stored away in protection for the one time a year they got used and moved and never touched by children. It was a big deal when these plates came out because these were our Christmas dinner plates. These plates were different. They were fine china with Christmas trees and a star on top and red garland wrapped around them. These plates got washed by hand and dried by hand and then put back into like the foam folder into the box, into the cupboard in the other room. These plates were holy compared to the other plates. Holiness has a simple definition that most of us, or many of us, have probably heard. The word holy has come to mean set apart, something that is set aside, unlike the ordinary or unlike the normal. And as we have come to believe and understand God as holy, we have learned to think about God in a way that designates that he is not like any other spiritual being or person or anything like that. That God is unique amongst the rest of all things that exist. And while that's true, God is set apart in that way, that definition also seems a bit incomplete because when I think about God being set apart, I don't think of him as accessible anymore. I don't think of him as like nearby or present in the ordinary anymore. I think about God like I do my Christmas plates when I was a child, not to be touched by children and only to be taken very seriously, and surely that is not our God. And while all of that in whole is not like terribly wrong, we should take time to take God serious and treat him with the reverence he is due, and we should fear him. We should also be able to come to God in extremely ordinary ways on extremely ordinary days with our chips and our cracks and our brokenness. God's heart has always been that he would be with his people. And the work of Christ has made that more accessible, not less. 
And I remember in my first year of seminary, my professor, Gary Prashiris, who poked holes in a lot of my thinking about God, as any good professor does. And one of them was this idea of holiness as just being set apart. And to give Gary credit, he would not say using the definition of being set apart for the word holy is wrong. He wouldn't say that. But he would also say it's not the best word either. Then we think of the word holy, we should not just think about God's uniqueness amongst the rest. But the word holy should also speak to like a dedicated purpose of something. So the plates to be used in the temple, like in the, in the Old Testament scriptures, there's certain things that are defined as holy plates to be used in the temple. That they don't, they're not holy just because they're set apart. They're holy because they have a dedicated purpose for a specific place in a specific time. But they're dedicated to God to be used in a specific sort of way. You see, I think as I've come to understand, to be holy means to be dedicated to something for something. And we must first understand this idea of holy as dedication through the way we understand the world and ourselves. It means then that God has dedicated himself to something. So what is God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, what is he dedicated to? First, God has dedicated himself to himself. God has dedicated, like the Father is dedicated to the Son, is dedicated to the Spirit. They're committed in like triune relationship as we beckon and cry out, holy, holy, holy. God is dedicated to like three persons in one. God is also dedicated to his character manifest always in love. God is dedicated to his word. And lastly, God is dedicated to his people, to you. God's holiness is a description of God's dedication to you. That when we think about God as holy, we should think of the dedication for God to be the person that he said that he is. And that's one of the beautiful things about the scriptures, because God tells us who he is. You see, in the book of Genesis, God actually never reveals his name. You see how God acts in humanity and in the world, but he doesn't tell us his name. And then in Exodus 3, we see Moses ask God for his name. In the burning bush incident, when God is sending Moses back to the Israelites, and Moses says, who do I tell them that you are? And God says, I am who I am. Or an alternative translation of that is, I will be who I will be. Which means that you will know who I am by how I act in the world. Because God is dedicated to who he is. And God goes on to deliver and save the people of Israel, revealing that God is a deliverer and a savior, demonstrating who he is. And then later in Exodus 34, God finally gives Moses a name. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. This is also the most quoted passage in the Old Testament by the New Testament. And God passes in front of Moses proclaiming, 
This is his name. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of generations, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for their sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. And the contrast there between the blessing of the thousands of generations and the cursing of the three and four generations is very intentional, that you see those two things paired together. In verse 7, that God maintains love to thousands of generations. And then at the end of verse 7, that God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes children and their children for the sin of parents to the third and fourth generation. So the, the love for thousands of generations and the accountability of how God will act toward you. This is who God will be to you, with you, because God cannot be untrue to himself. He will be true to his word and true to his name and true to the way he acts in the world. He is unlike any other God or any other spiritual being. Sometimes in Christian circles, we get into debates about like the Genesis account and its role in our faith and whether we should take it literally or whether it's like interpretive or, or what we should do with it. Um, and there's varying belief around that in Christian circles. And all of that's okay. Is it old earth? Is it younger? It's all okay. It's all okay. Like we, we all believe it's seven literal days. We don't know when it is historically. It's all okay. Everyone take a deep breath. But what's so important about Genesis is that God begins to reveal who he is. God begins to reveal who he is. And if we compare that with like other ancient Near East creation stories, which is what the Genesis account is, the gods mentioned in the other creation narratives are like violent and vengeful. They create the world out of anger and spite, creating humanity to be like indentured servants and slaves to the gods. But not Yahweh, not our creator, not our God. He is different than the rest. He's unique amongst the other gods. Our God is holy, dedicated to be full of his character and is holy in the way he acts in the world. He's uniquely different amongst the rest. But in our creation account, we see a creator with a different sort of character than the rest. We see that God creates good things that are meant to be enjoyed. We see these beautiful pictures of who God reveals himself to be to the world. And sometimes through our disoriented church experiences or people who have used God to manipulate and abuse others, we've actually come to think about God in a way that is nothing like who he actually is. Many of us, when we hear the word holy, don't think of God as holy in a good way. We think of God as holy in a like set apart, abusive, angry father sort of way. That like is mad when you sleep in, when there's work to be done. And that is not at all who God is. We project onto God our unspoken hurts and wounds, trusting him only as much as we like trust ourselves often. We don't see God as he has revealed himself to be, but we have this distorted image of God 
based on our own hurts and pains in the world, and we cast our experience with our own Father onto God himself like they are one in the same. And for the dads in the room, this is why it's important to to be a person of honesty and a person of repentance. Because we get this unique gift of representing God to our families and to our children as Jesus calls him Father. So it's important, it's imperative that like we not be afraid to be in process toward becoming a better dad or a more like faithful to Jesus person in front of our kids. That's not something we do in private and then like discipline them. Like we become more like Christ with them, not separate from them. And through that, we get to model this picture where like obviously we're not God. We, we know that and our kids know that. But there's something unique about the relationship between father and children that like ends up getting projected onto God. And so that is just an honest and open, like, responsibility to carry for the dads in the room. But what is unique about God's holiness is that, yes, it is set apart, but it's not set apart in a distant sort of way. It's the reason I don't love that definition. God's holy because he is committed to the other members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. He is holy because he is committed to who he says he will be. And he is committed to his creation. He's committed to you. And from this picture of understanding God is radically different from anything else in all of existence. So we understand not just God being set apart, but him being like dedicated to things, and that is what actually sets him apart. Because he's radically committed to his character and his ways and himself. And then there's this unique twist that happens in Leviticus where we are invited to be holy as God is holy. Leviticus 20 verse 26 says, You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Or 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you, speaking of God, is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. The invitation from these scriptures is for us to be holy as God is holy, for us to be dedicated as God is dedicated. So the question deep down is, what have we dedicated our lives to? What have we dedicated our lives to? We're invited to be dedicated to God. We're invited to be dedicated to being in an abiding relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth. We're invited to be dedicated to like one another as our neighbors. We're invited to be dedicated to like growing in Christ-likeness or having Christ-like character. But what is it that we've become dedicated to? In the Old Testament, 
is a command from God to his people. We see the instruction, as we read earlier, to keep the Sabbath holy. And again, like Jackie said two weeks ago, we are not underneath the law of the Sabbath or the law of the Ten Commandments. But we have been given this pattern in the creation of the world and instruction in the Old Testament about what like flourishing as a part of God's creation really looks like. Again, like practicing or keeping the Sabbath holy is not self-help and is not becoming the best you, but it is about like living in a way that God has structured and patterned the world that you would have life and life to the full, as Jesus says. And the purpose of that flourishing is not just for your own being, but it's that you might be faithful on mission in the world, representing the person of Jesus to the world, continuing in God's mission exactly where you are. Exactly where you are. The invitation to flourish is to fulfill the Great Commission. They're put together, not pulled apart. Sabbath keeping is not for earning. Sabbath keeping is for becoming. One of the unique marks of God's people has always been to keep the Sabbath day holy. That we are people that do not work to unpaid work and paid work. When we say no to that, all we do, all we are confronted with is receiving from God. And in that time, we reorient ourselves toward God on Sabbath day. And Sabbath day exists in the calendar each and every week that we might allow our hearts to like week in and week out become dedicated to God. That like we literally structure our week around a day of dedication to God. And in the slowing down and the keeping of Sabbath, we do not keep it holy or rededicate ourselves to God by like showing up to church in a two-hour time slot where God's people are gathered together every week. For most of us, if, if, in particular if you're raised in the Protestant or evangelical tradition, like Sabbath keeping in the church has become like going to church for two hours. And that's not at all what we're talking about here. These two are very different things. There's a book called Keeping the Sabbath Holy by Marva, blanked on her last name, and she says, what a sad commentary on the North American church that it has, Sabbath keeping has been reduced to showing up to a two-hour event with usually stale crackers and watered-down juice. And I laugh because this morning we ran out of juice, so we had to water it down. So, like, if you're taking juice, not wine today, it's literally watered-down juice. But if this is keeping the Sabbath holy, then we have completely misunderstood or misapplied every single word of the phrase, keep the Sabbath holy. You see, showing up to church is not keeping. Sabbath is not a participation in a two-hour event there's very little you could grasp about God's dedication or holiness to you through the consumption of some songs and a teaching. Compare that to an, a, a weekly event that feels like the best day of the week every week, intentionally dedicated to experience God and the beautiful things he has for you in the world. 
compare those two where every Saturday in my home feels like a holiday, feels like a little version of Thanksgiving or Christmas. It feels nothing like going to church on a Sunday morning. Nothing. And what is important as we like clearly understand this invitation to practice the Sabbath is that we like understand what it means and its implications because how we talk about Sabbath actually forms what we really believe about Sabbath. It's a cultural event. Specifically in the American culture, like depending where you live, Bakersfield included our little part of West Texas that is Kern County, it is culturally expected that you participate in church somewhere. And participating in a two-hour event is very different than experiencing Sabbath as a unique mark of God's people. They're all together different. So we must be willing to reclaim stepping into a different sort of life, a more flourishing picture of life, a life that's built on work and rest, not just the endless cycle of work. We must reclaim our understanding of God's holiness, and in turn, our invitation to holiness, our invitation to be dedicated to God with every single fiber of our being, with every hour of our day, with all that we are and everything we touch and all the hats we wear and everything we do, that those things, each and every one of them, are dedicated to God. And what many of us have been told is that to be holy must mean we must be set apart. But what, what ends up happening there is becoming set apart means that we must like separate ourselves from people who don't follow Jesus or who don't believe in him. And that is like not totally wrong, which feels like a gross oversimplification because it is. But where that leads us more into is like when we want be faithfully dedicated to follow Jesus amongst people who are far from God. We become like the weird Christian friends that no one really knows what to do with. We end up like throwing out books like Harry Potter because Harry's a wizard or whatever. And that is not the type of holiness we are invited to. That is like, that is more of a moral posturing or virtue signaling than it is a, mark, a marked life of holiness dedicated to God. Holiness is not being perfect or morally superior. Holiness is a life that is dedicated to one thing. Better yet, holiness is a life dedicated to one person, to one being, to God himself, the one who formed you in your mother's womb, who knows your deepest, darkest pains, knows the dark nights you've had in your life, knows like before you've ever prayed them, if you've ever prayed them, your doubts and struggles to believe and to follow. He knows them all. And he invites us to be holy, dedicated to him as he is to us. So we must quit measuring our holiness by the things that we stand against because we end up being those sorts of people that just like are proud of the things we stand against. We end up abstaining from everything the world touches or does or embraces. And we must actually in turn start being like Jesus again. Going to the marginalized. 
going to those that are far from God, going to the drunkard, going to the workaholics, going to people who are like spending their lives toward the wrong ends, that we might carry a bit of God's light with us to that place. It is not that we just need to be different from the world. That is true. But our difference should not be the goal. Our dedication to God should be the goal. Because it does not mean that like carte blanche, we just accept everything the world touches and the world does. Of course we don't do that. But what it does mean is the primary definition of holiness means to be dedicated to God and God alone with every aspect of your lives. So much so that it might make the religious elite uncomfortable with your willingness to step into wherever it seems like God isn't because God is with you. You see, they didn't kill Jesus because of his clash with culture. They killed Jesus because he said he was God and that you should build a life around him. And sure, that, that clashes with culture. But the clash with culture is not the primary access point to following Jesus. Allowing Jesus to be Lord of your life, decision maker of your life, soul influencer of your life, that of course will make you clash with culture. But the point is not to clash with culture. The point is to follow and listen to and obey Jesus. To be dedicated to one thing. We must start measuring our holiness again as dedication to God. We must start as the Sermon on the Mount so often taught us, not with behavioral works, but with the intentions of our hearts. I'm going to read from Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 27. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it there. Mark 2. Verses 23 through 27. Oh, I'm in Mark 1. I was like, that does not talk about what the thing I thought it was. Mark 2, 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Verse 27, then he, Jesus, said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And what we generally do with this, like, with this text is very American. We strip it of its ancient near East context. You see, when Sabbath comes up in the New Testament, which happens more often in like referencing a day of the week after the Sabbath day or two days until the Sabbath day, that's how the word Sabbath comes up most often. It's very rarely discussed in the New Testament, but when it comes up as a part of the story rather than just background, it is almost always for what Jesus is doing on the Sabbath day. 
Not for sleeping or avoiding work or any of that. It almost always comes up because the religious elite are attacking Jesus for doing things. You see, ancient rabbinical law around Sabbath, the Qumrah, is the practice of like taking a law or a command and then building a fence around that law or command to ensure that it's not broken. So they take something that God's given as a command, keep the Sabbath holy, and then they've put a bunch of rules and regulations around that law to ensure that it's not broken. And the problem with that is, is it shifts from a place of heart to a place of behavior. You see, if the point of the law of the Old Testament, of God's instruction of the past, if the point of it is to amend the heart, and the heart follows and obeys, is becoming more like God's heart, then God's people can move forward in flourishing. But if God's law is like a do not go out of bounds box, then it is helpful to draw a box around it to ensure you don't get close to breaking the law. So if God's law in the Old Testament is meant to be salvific or kept to a T to earn favor with God, then it is right to ensure like these Pharisees do that like every jot and tittle is kept. But what happens is what Jesus says in Mark 2 is that we end up living lives like man was made for the Sabbath rather than Sabbath for the man. That our lives are built around the reality of rule keeping because we need something we can measure and accomplish rather than just submit ourselves to and receive grace from God. That the Sabbath day of old is where God is and we must set it apart from the other days to ensure that God gets his Sabbath. And this is where like often the Jewish rabbis or the Jewish community loses me a bit. When they talk about Sabbath, they begin to talk about Sabbath like she's a queen that should be honored. And that's like, it's not totally wrong, but the heart posture of it is it ends up feeling like we become enslaved to a queen of Sabbath rather than flourishing on a day that is holy because God is present. And what Jesus is saying here in Mark 2 is, is the opposite of that. It's saying, Jesus is saying, like, don't allow Sabbath to, like, entangle you or ensnare you. You don't serve Sabbath. Sabbath is designed to serve you. That Sabbath day and its holiness is meant to serve you. It's meant to be dedicated to God and be a space where you contemplate God's dedication to you. And of course, the dedication to God of our lives, our response from God's dedication to us, ought to be our dedication to God. And that does not just live on Sabbath day. It is, yes, a uniquely built-in reminder each and every week that God is holy and dedicated to provide for you and meet you. And we are invited in response to be holy and dedicated to God in that same sort of way. But we keep the Sabbath holy, dedicated to God, not because it has been, not because it has been, like, it doesn't have to exist. Sabbath doesn't have to exist for God to be holy, of course. God is holy all and above that. 
And we are not under the law of Sabbath keeping to make sure God knows he is holy. But what Sabbath keeping does, it is actually creates something inside of us each and every week where time and time again we uniquely experience the holiness of God. We don't honor Sabbath keeping by keeping Sabbath. We honor God by keeping Sabbath. Let me say that again. We don't honor Sabbath by keeping Sabbath. Our heart is to honor God as we keep Sabbath. Sabbath is about interacting and experiencing God. And while we do that, we find ourselves again. We become dedicated to God again, and our entire life flows from experiencing Him and becoming like Him. And at the same time, as we become more like Him, we also become more like us, like the person you were created by God to be. So the invitation is that we continue just to like take small steps into keeping this out. I'm going to put away things. I'm going to put away work intentionally be present to God. We ask you to pick something to say no to that symbolizes you releasing control. I shared that our first move, my family's first move to Sabbath was like, we're not going to make our beds. Like, that's it. Really small movements to release control, to allow God to be the provider and allow God's grace to be enough. And third, we ask you to pick something you delight to do that brings you joy and delight, and then to do it on Sabbath day. To intentionally say no to some things so you can intentionally say yes to God and the good things he has for you. And we want to continue to provide you with like little steps for you to take at your own pace as you explore Sabbath. But this is really like the heartbeat of our community and and where we desire to go to be formed by God as a community. So this week, I want to invite you to take like five to ten minutes on your Sabbath day to contemplate God's dedication to you. And then also what God is inviting you to be dedicated to. And allow your heart the time to sit with Him. I know that's hard. I know that's hard. But it's a learned practice of a follower of Jesus to be able to sit alone with God. Allow your heart to sit with Him in this question. God, what are you dedicated to? And God, what are you inviting me to be dedicated to? And allow the Spirit of God to speak to you. I want to close by reading Isaiah 57, verse 15 again. As we close, would you stand with me as I read this? Isaiah 57, verse 15. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God, we come to you now. We recognize you as holy. We like gaze upon your beauty. And just as we come to respond to your word, to your teaching, to your invitation to be holy as you are holy, we um, just maybe even our own hearts or minds just like give you ourselves again. 
and we worship you. We sing to you. Thank you for loving us the way that you do, God. For seeing us and knowing us, being dedicated to us in the way that you are. You've never failed us. You've always been faithful. And we just say thank you for that, God. And Spirit, we ask that you would speak to hearts. We ask that as we like respond to your holiness, that God, you would stir up affection in our hearts for you.